whenever Julie is trying to communicate something to me about myself, either about ways that I communicate or ways that I react, usually unpleasant or inappropriate things, I do something that drives her nuts. I ask her for examples. And I say, can you give me an example? And here's the, here's the issue. She hears that as me saying, prove it. <laughs> that's not what I mean. What I mean is, help me understand. That, that's the way that I learn a concept or uh, a principle, is if I can see an example of it or an illustration of it. For the last two weeks, we've been looking at Psalm 103, a Psalm of David. And in that Psalm, David lists reasons why we should praise God. We've looked already at the individual reasons with which David begins the Psalm. And in last week, we examined the corporate reasons. God forgives sins. He heals diseases of the soul. He redeems lives from the pit and crowns them with love and compassion. He satisfies our desires with good things so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. He has revealed himself. He, he, has, he is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor does he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay his people according to their iniquity. That's already a long list, and it's a good list, and it's a list of joy, but there's more to come. When David arrives in verse 11, he takes a different tack. So rather than just continuing the list, he says, now I want to illustrate these blessings to you. I'm going to paint some word pictures that are going to help you visualize just how incredible God is to his people. And then he proceeds to give three examples. And those are the three examples that we'll be looking at today. I'll read them for you first from Psalm 103, verses 11 through 13. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. The first example that David gives us is to illustrate the vastness of God's love. Do you ever simply contemplate infinity? I think about infinity infinity from time to time, uh, contemplating infinity actually got me through a lot of sermons here at Calvary International Church when I was a child. This is just for, from full disclosure, uh, sitting on the third row from the back, right over there, about two or three seats in, which was where I always sat every week next to my mom, Mary. And sometimes either a, maybe it was a verse, maybe it was something that the pastor at the time, my dad, uh, would, would mention, but the, the concept of eternity or infinity would be triggered in my mind. And I would just zone out, kind of get in this trance where you're, you're trying to imagine something that never ends, whether it's the nature of God, whether it's eternity. And in our human limited thinking, there always needs to be an end point. 
But then you just say, but there's not. It just keeps going and going. But then, well, it's got to end sometime. No, it just keeps going and going. So as I said, contemplating infinity got me through a lot of services here as a child. But that's exactly the image that David gives us of God's love. It is infinite. It's never ending. So if you start at ground level and you start going up, God's love goes beyond the outer edges of outer space. And God's love cannot and will not ever run out. I've heard a number of times from either a, a woman or a man, maybe you've heard it too, and they're in, in crisis because their spouse, their husband or their wife had just said to them, I just, I don't love you anymore. And like, where, where do I go from here? Everything that I thought I knew, everything that, that my life in a sense or my security was based on, it's just crumbling God will never turn to his children and say, all right, that's it. I don't love you anymore. You've sinned one time too many. I'm sick and tired of your pathetic choices and excuses. I don't love you anymore. This love of God's is the source of the security of his children. When we know that we are loved with God's infinite love, then we can rest in our identity when we know we are loved with this love, then we can trust that he will do what is truly best for us. And when we, are know, when we know that we are loved by this love, we can stop hiding, which is something we do a lot. All of us hide. At some point in our lives, we hide. And when we become convinced of the infinite, boundless love of God for us, then we can stop hiding we can stop hiding those deep, dark secrets, our true selves. We can stop hiding our sin because we are already loved by God, whose love is infinite. The second illustration David uses is to communicate how God separates us from our sin. As far as the east is from the west. Now I know, I know, there's some junior hires out there that have had science and you're going to say, yeah, but if you go east one way and west the other way, you know, you're going to meet on the other side and you're going to be back together again. David may be making a scientific statement here, but that's not his main point. He's not taking the curvature of the earth into account. He's saying that if you start here and without following the curve of the earth, you go in that direction and the other person or object goes all the way in that direction, they will never meet. They will get increasingly farther apart if they are allowed to travel in those directions uh, for eternity. When sin is confessed and repented of, God sends his child in one direction and he excises their sin and sends it in the opposite direction. And he just has them keep going and keep going and keep going. So think about that image for a moment. We are burdened and shackled in bondage to and by our sin. That's the way that scripture defines it. We are captives. It's not that, that we, we don't even have a choice. God does not only treat us, he does not only not treat us as our sins deserve, but he removes that same sin from us. Consider a baby. You've all been one. 
Some of you have one. Some of you have several. Some of you have had them. But when a parent changes their baby's diaper, what do they do with that diaper? So do they, they change the diaper, they take the dirty diaper, and they just lay it in the crib open next to the baby, right? You just lay it there. Why? Well, you want the baby to remember what they did, right? You want them to be reminded of it constantly. Look what you did. You're a pooper. You've always been a pooper. You're always going to be a pooper. And this is the result of what you've done. And I want that stench and that filth to be with you, to remember. So the baby will roll over into it and be reminded of just how despicable they are. Is that what parents do? No, parents change the diaper and they take it as far away as the east is from the west, from the baby and from them. And it keeps going. You know, it goes into the trash can, eventually it goes out to the curb and then it goes into the dump truck, the trash truck, whatever. Anyway, it goes away, far away. And I know this is a crass example, but at the same time, I have never met any parents who save those dirty diapers. I'm going to say I have a special closet in my home for all the dirty diapers that you made. And every once in a while you take your child, see all that mess in there? You did that. You're a pooper. And there's no limit to diaper changes either. When a child's born, you know, the father or the mother doesn't say to them, look, you, you are born with 100 free diaper changes. After that, 101 is too many then you're responsible, then you keep that. You're going to live in that same diaper. That's it. No matter how many times we sin, upon genuine confession and repentance, God removes that sin from us as far as the east is from the west. He promises that he will not accuse us with that sin ever again. He does not identify us with that sin. He forgives and removes. And he forgives the sin. He removes the shame. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. In his third example, David draws on a common human experience. The compassion that parents have for their children. He specifically speaks of fathers here because God reveals himself as father and I, I am well aware that sometimes this is a very difficult concept to understand for people whose earthly fathers have failed them in some way, who have not been godly examples, who have betrayed them or abandoned them, and I understand that. But that doesn't change who God is. And he uses, David uses the, the, the image of a human father having compassion on his child to illustrate for us the attitude that the Almighty God as Father has for all those who are his children. The dictionary defines compassion like this, a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who is stricken by misfortune, accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the suffering. God, as Heavenly Father, looks on us, His children, in this way. He is not unmoved by the suffering and pain of His church. This means that any suffering that we might experience, any pain, any sorrow, any grief 
They don't occur outside of or beyond the compassion of the Heavenly Father. So then the immediate question that follows that is then, then God, if you are compassionate, why don't you alleviate the suffering? Why don't you make the pain go away? I don't think there's any answer that is going to fully satisfy anyone who is suffering at the moment. But if God's love is as infinite as he claims, it means that whatever suffering he brings or whatever suffering he allows is because ultimately that is going to bring about his purpose and our good. An example I've used before, I'll use it one more time, is when I was uh, eight years old, I think, and I broke my arm. And we, were, we went to the clinic, the hospital, and the doctors had to set my arm. And I didn't really understand what was going on. I hadn't been prepared for it. No one had explained to me on purpose, as I found out later, because all of a sudden, one doctor grabbed this part of my arm, the other doctor grabbed this part of my, my arm, and they yanked it. And my mom was standing right there watching. And as a child, I'm like, well, ah, what, what's going on? I'm looking at the doctor, I'm looking at, and then they did it again, because I guess the first time it didn't set. They did it again, it popped into place. Now, obviously, as, as, as an adult, I look back, and now I, I, I see, you understand, we all know, of course, that was painful, but it was actually an act of goodness. Why? Because it, it brought about healing, ultimately, it kept my arm from knitting, you know, crooked and from me maybe perhaps losing some of the effectiveness of that limb. And so at some point I can look back on it and say, well, I'm grateful for that pain. Now, I know that that's a simplistic example. But if we believe that God's love is what he says his love is, then we also know that in his compassion, he does not allow meaningless suffering. It is because he is truly zealous for our future and our good. Now, for those of us who live in Sao Paulo, all of you are very familiar with something that we call lombadas, right? In English, we call them speed bumps, speed bumps. Um, you're aware of them. You're, you're, you're sometimes consciously aware of them. If you're not consciously aware of them, you become unconsciously aware of them, particularly in, on a dark street uh, in an unfamiliar area of town. And uh, if you're not aware of it beforehand, you will become aware of them as you uh, damage your vehicle going over them uh, too fast. What's the purpose of a speed bump? It's to make us slow down and pay attention. David, in these three verses, has included a speed bump, which I've intentionally skipped until now. He put something in there that should make us slow down, pause, and consider and examine our own lives a little bit. What is that speed bump? It's a small phrase that he repeated twice. It's a limitation that he put on who will experience God's love and compassion. And that condition is the fear of the Lord. So great is the Lord's love for those who fear him. 
So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. That makes us a little uncomfortable, perhaps. We don't like to focus on those, those things that seem to limit something that appears to be, or we've been told has always been free for everyone. So what is the fear of the Lord? It's the profound, realistic awe of the holiness, righteousness, justice, and power of God. We see the fear of the Lord in the response of the prophet Isaiah when he has a vision of the majesty and glory of God in heaven. How does Isaiah respond? He falls down to his knees and he calls out, Woe is me, for I am undone. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. In the face of the holiness and majesty of God, Isaiah realized his own brokenness and sinfulness and perversion. Fear, as we normally understand it, arises when we're uncertain about a person's intentions toward us. So let's go back to that dark street that you don't know very well. Let's say it's about 11, 11.30 at night, and you're walking down that street in an unfamiliar area of town. It's dark. There's not much street lights. But in the distance, down a few blocks, you see the single headlight of a motorcycle coming toward you. And as it gets closer to you, it slows down, and you realize that there are two men on this motorcycle. Not only does it slow down, but it starts coming over to the sidewalk where you are walking. What do you begin to feel? I do. Why? Because you are uncertain of their intentions toward you. You have suspicions of what their intentions might be, and you don't trust them. And that, that rises, that causes fear to rise in us. Now, the fear of the Lord is different. It's not the same. The fear of the Lord doesn't stem from uncertainty. The fear of the Lord should come from certainty. The fact that God has shown us already that he is the judge of the world and he has shown us how he views sin. These are certainties. And those who know God should fear crossing into sin because it puts us in opposition to a holy, righteous, just, God. If we're honest with ourselves, I think we would acknowledge that there is a lack of the fear of the Lord in our hearts, maybe in our, our broader community, maybe in the Western church as a whole. There may be many reasons for this, but I think it might stem from the fact that we tend to ignore or underemphasize the holiness and righteousness of God. We focus a lot on his love and compassion, but we forget why we need his love and compassion in the first place. Uh, how many worship songs are there about the fear of the Lord? I don't know. There may be some. A phrase might work its way in here and there, but how many worship songs are there about the love of God or the compassion of God or the forgiveness of God? Now listen, those things are worth celebrating. 
David has already told us this. I'm not arguing against it. I'm not saying let's get rid of the songs that are about God's love and compassion and forgiveness. I'm just asking a question. Why is it that we have ample examples of those songs, but when it comes to fear of the Lord, there's, there's, not, there's not very much out there. We're uncomfortable with this concept. Why do we need God's love and compassion? Because we're sinners and the wages of sin is death and hell. That's why we need God's love and compassion. God is Savior, but He is also Judge. God is love, He is also a consuming fire. When the psalmist says that God's love is for those who fear Him and that He has compassion on those who fear Him, it's because a healthy and right fear of the Lord is going to keep us close to Him. Now, from a human perspective, as we generally understand the word fear, that doesn't make sense, right? Fear, humanly speaking, separates. My brother-in-law's brother, his name is Brian. When I lived in the same city as Brian did, one of Brian's greatest joys in the world was to convince people to get on his motorcycle with him and then to terrify them. Truly. And he was awful. He was horrible. He would drive in very unwise, unsafe ways for the simple pleasure of, of hearing the person behind him scream and beg him to stop, which he would not do. I never got on, my, on Brian's motorcycle. He offered several times, come on. He, I used to be known as Nate. He's like, come on, Nate, just hop on, just go quick drive. Let's go around the block. Motorcycles are fun. So they might be fun, but not when you're driving. So in that case, fear, I was afraid. Fear separated me from Brian and his motorcycle. And that's the image that we have. It's like fear will keep us apart, but fear of the Lord will draw us close. Fear of the Lord will keep us under the covering of his love and compassion. That's what David says. The Lord's love is for those who fear him. He has compassion on those who fear him. The fear of the Lord will keep us walking in obedience. It will keep us confessing our sin. It will keep us repenting of our iniquities. Because the fear of the Lord is to fear falling under his judgment, which is a terrible thought. Since David has already alluded to Exodus in the psalm, it's worth going there again to remind us of the function, the role, and the purpose of the fear of the Lord. Exodus 20:20, 20, 20, Moses says to the people, listen to what he says. You've heard this before during our series on the book of Exodus. Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And listen to the difference. Do not be afraid. That's the first thing he says. Do not be afraid. And then he follows that up with the fear of the Lord. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you. And what is the function or one of the functions of the fear of the Lord in the life of his children? It's to keep us from sin. That keeps us close to the Father. That keeps us close to Christ. It keeps us close to God. It maintains the child in right relationship with him. 
Why? Because it keeps us from sin. So fear of the Lord keeps us in a position to receive his love and compassion, whereas complacency causes us to drift into sin away from his protection. So then, then you ask, well, can, how can fear of the Lord coexist with love? I think it coexists very easily. As a child, and many of you, if not all of you, know who my parents are. I was raised in a firm, strict household. There were clear and immediate penalties for disobedience, for lying, for inappropriate actions and decisions. But at no point did I ever doubt or was I ever insecure in the fact that my parents loved me. Quite the opposite, actually. I was very secure in that truth. I knew my parents loved me. I never questioned that. I was blessed with that as a child. I never had to question. It never came to me, do mom and dad not love me? And I had, <clears throat> I would call it a holy righteous fear. Uh, it wasn't strong enough to keep me from disobeying, but it was strong enough to make me try to hide my disobedience because I was, uh, I was afraid of the consequences of sin in that regard. I've told you this before. Every time my mom or my dad said to me, Nathaniel, we need to talk. I was like, oh no. What have they discovered? You know, <laughs> what did they find out that I did? You know, all those things I've tried to hide. What did they find out? So I, I don't see that there is any reason that the fear of the Lord, which keeps us from sin and draws us closer to him under his umbrella of love and compassion, there is I don't see any reason that that fear would not be able to coexist with God's love for his people and our love for him. In fact, the two feed the other. So maybe in our current context, we ask the next question, which is, how do we get the fear of the Lord then? If it's lacking, if we have legitimately examined ourselves and we say, you know what? I, I, am, I celebrate God, your love and your compassion, your forgiveness, your mercy, your grace. But my own sin doesn't bother me as much as it should. And I, I, don't, I don't find a problem. There, there doesn't seem to be any problem in me with maintaining hidden, unconfessed sin and still thinking that my, my position with you, my relationship with you is, is fine. And, and we sense that we lack that fear of the Lord, then how do we open ourselves up to receive it? In Deuteronomy 31, Moses is preparing the Israelite nation to enter the promised land. Now, this preparation has gone on for over 40 years at this point. Now, they're right on the verge of it. They're just ready to go in. And he gives them a practice. He institutes for them a tradition. And he says, every seven years, the whole nation will gather together. And at that gathering, the law of God will be read aloud to the whole people. And he goes out of his way to mention children. So there was no ancient Near Eastern Israelite junior church. 
you know, so they'd all come together, and then the children, children, you can go, and you know, you'll have a, a law of God lychee on the side, and um, all the, the adults will stand here and get the, the real thing. He brings them all together. And he says, the, word, the law of God will be read for what purpose? To teach you the fear of the Lord. And then he repeats it again, addressing the children. Your children will hear it, that they may be taught the fear of the Lord. So in that context, what is God's tool for teaching his children to fear him? It's his word. It's his self-revelation through his word and his law. So if you find yourself in this situation of a lack of the fear of the Lord, then the first step is to admit it, to be honest about it. The second is to repent before him and say, Lord, I lack this, and ask him to cultivate that healthy awe and fear in you. And then thirdly, as a practical step, consistently go to the word of God. And let me encourage you, not just the pleasant bits, okay? Let's, you don't just read Psalm 23, although it's worth reading, it's worth memorizing, it's worth knowing. But we need the whole counsel of Scripture. We need to encounter God as the loving Savior. We need to encounter God as the just judge. We need to encounter God as the merciful Redeemer. And we also need to encounter God as the one who punishes His children when they refuse to repent. We need the full counsel of Scripture because there God has revealed Himself fully in Scripture and through His Son, Jesus Christ. We need to pay attention to His holiness, His righteousness, and His judgment, even as we rest in His love, His compassion, and His sacrifice on our behalf. So, to draw this to a close, I think that the factor that should most contribute to our fear of the Lord is the cross. The cross of Christ. And Christ's, Jesus' sacrifice there at that place. Because the cross reveals how seriously God views sin, doesn't it? It shows us how anathema sin is to the character of God. And how high the price of sin is. Sin can only be paid for by blood. And that fact should cause the fear of the Lord to grow in us. That my sin can only be paid for by blood. And yet, at that same place, at the cross, we see the greatest example of the love of God and the compassion of God for his children. All in the cross. We see the fear of the Lord and we see his love and we see his compassion because God paid that blood price in Christ on the cross. And we praise God because his love for his children is so, is so great. 
We praise Him because He has removed our sins and our guilt from us. We praise Him because He has compassion on those who are His children. And the fear of God will keep us close to His love, His compassion, and His forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your infinite love. Thank you for your mercy and grace revealed in your removal of our sins. That that burden and the shame and the guilt is gone. Thank you for the compassion that you have on your children. That you see our suffering and our pain. And that you are not unmoved by it. Yet, Lord, we also confess that we are often slow and weak in our fear before your righteousness and holiness. And that because we lack that fear, we stray far too easily into sin and into activities that do not please you or honor you. Have mercy on us, Lord, and forgive us. Give us the gift of true repentance that we might live joyfully and freely under your love and your compassion. In Christ's name we pray.